Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Well, I am thrilled because we're going to have a guest who I met in the early 90s when he worked for Senator Dianne Feinstein. He has been a wonderful uh, privacy expert, identity theft expert, and privacy advocate for many, many years. And now he is the chief privacy officer and Vice President of Governmental Affairs for ID Analytics, which is in San Diego. But he's coming to us all the way from Washington, D.C. Let me tell you a little bit about Tom Usheritz. He is responsible for monitoring and managing compliance with key government laws and regulations for ID Analytics as the Vice President of Government Affairs, and that's why he's in D.C., In addition, Tom is a certified information privacy professional, and he's the chief privacy officer for ID Analytics. He regularly gives consulting advice to ID Analytic customers in the areas of privacy, regulation, and legislation. Tom joined ID Analytics from the office of Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is our Democratic senator in California. And he served as counsel to Diane and represented her for five years on the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Terrorism, Technology, and Homeland Security. And that's how I met him, because I testified for that committee a couple times, and he was just wonderful to be uh, helpful to me and advise me as how to do this. And in fact, when I had Diane Feinstein write the forward to my book, From Victim to Victor, Tom was very much involved in that and helped me out with that. Anyway, during his tenure in the Senate, Tom Oshowitz played a leading role in the drafting of identity theft and privacy legislation, and he helped draft key anti-fraud provisions of the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act, which has really given a lot of rights to consumer victims of identity theft, actually for the first time, and that law passed in 2003. It was signed by President Bush. Tom is the chairperson of Tech America's Identity Management Committee and the originator of the Red Flag Forum on LinkedIn. He also recently served on a Presidential Advisory Committee on Identity Management. Tom Oshowitz is a frequent speaker and writer on topics of privacy and identity theft and identity intelligence. He's spoken for many, many uh, entities and institutions, and there's so much more about him, but you can find out more about him at idanalytics.com, myidscore.com, and also at www.kuci.org slash privacypiracy, where you will see his bio and his picture, and he's wonderful, and I thank you so much, Tom. It's so great to talk to you again. My, it's a real <laughs> thrill and honor to be here on the show, and uh, I'm just hearing memory lane there for a second. I remember 
when I was a relatively newly minted staffer for Senator Feinstein, and we were just at the sort of the, I guess, sadly, the dawn of the age of sort of identity theft and the legislative response. You were right there, and it was fun to work with you. I know. First, I came on her uh, committee to testify as a victim turned victor, and then I came on as an expert, and it was really a lot. I, I so much appreciated your help at that time. Good stuff went on, and I'm sure you were really you know, an instigator of all the good things, and I, and I appreciate you. So you're doing some exciting things now. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, uh, I would say consistently, uh, at least for the past decade, I, I've been working in the field of um, identity theft and uh, privacy protection. I've had sort of the unique experience of working at it from uh, the government perspective as, as well as from the business. And one, one thing you learn is that there's a way each of us can contribute. Exactly. So, you know, because you're right in the heart of D.C. And, and you get to see what's going on with legislation and everything, but you've also now had the opportunity to work in the private sector, how would you compare what's going on in the public sector and government with how it's going on, what's going on in the private sector? Well, I think there's two ways to look at it. One is what the government's role is in terms of policy. And what I've learned is that Government is absolutely crucial in setting identity theft to privacy policy because it deals with market externalities. There's a lot of things, especially when you're talking about information, where information impacts consumers and organizations in a 360-degree way. Um, we used to think about data from a corporate perspective you know, as a trade secret. What can we do to protect our asset? But it's clear now that um, there's more of a fiduciary responsibility, that information the organization holds that only affects that organization it also affects consumers, it affects government entities, and so government plays a huge role in setting policy. Right. On the other hand, um, government's also a user of technology, and uh, one thing I've learned is that the private sector tends to be a little bit more advanced usually in adopting cutting-edge technologies and implementing those, and so I, I think government has a little bit more to work in that area. You know, I think it's kind of interesting because in California, as you know, our security breach legislation has addressed both the public sector as far as governmental entities as well as the private sector so that even if there is a breach of sensitive information by the government uh, the government or some government sector, they must notify just as a corporate entity must. So they, they're pretty much having to, to speed up in terms of uh, security and that kind of technology, wouldn't you say? I think that's an excellent point, and I think it's the right approach, because as we all know with identity theft um, and privacy, we're all only as strong as our weakest link. If you have organizations that are protecting information very strongly, but others aren't, <laughs> thieves like water roll downhill, and they'll go after the most vulnerable area. Exactly. So let's talk about some of the exciting things that you're doing right now. You are the Chief Privacy Officer for ID Analytics, and we're going to talk about what ID Analytics is because most people don't even know. But why don't you talk about your role as a Privacy Officer? A lot of people don't realize that is kind of a new career in, in our society is having Chief Privacy Officers. People think of Chief Security Officers, but it's, it's really different. So tell us about your role and how you work in D.C. with regard to the company in San Diego. Excellent question, Mari. Uh, as you said, Chief Privacy Officer is a relatively new title. There's, um, I belong to an organization called the IOPP, which is the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and they have about 6,000 members. But eight years ago, it didn't even exist. And so I think one of the consequences of the era of the Internet um, and the fact that we have so much information out there is that managing that information in a safe and appropriate way is becoming a priority for organizations. And so now whether you're in the government sector or you're in the private sector, it's not only important to know what the information flows are, but also how they affect consumers. And one of my roles at ID Analytics, to some degree, is to be a consumer advocate to make sure that the data that we handle is being handled in an appropriate way um, that ensures consumer trust. And the other point I would make is because information is like sand that goes everywhere, there's tons of different laws, especially in the United States, where an organization needs to be cognizant of how it manages that information. So one of my jobs is to make sure that I understand what the, our responsibilities are for information. So when you're in D.C., you get a chance to see what kind of legislation is being proposed and what they're thinking about. Do you attend hearings? What do you do? My role at Ideologics is uh, I have multiple roles, but in terms of 
Washington, one of the challenges of being a privacy officer is to make sure you understand what the laws are. So, for example, right now there's over 45 different state data breach laws, and I, I need to put a caveat there, which is the number seems to always change, but at least I know it's over 45 right now. And you need to keep in track of it. And the other thing is that policies that government make can affect the way that you, you use data. Just to give you one quick example, there were companies in the late 90s that were using motor vehicle records, and that caused a lot of public concern. And Congress passed a law called the Driver's Privacy Protection Act, and that data was no longer used. So one of the roles is to understand what the trends are, to make sure that uh, you understand uh, how you can now and in the future use data. And I would think that also sometimes you, being from a company that does technology, that it's your job to help the legislators understand what the challenges are for companies like ID Analytics and to understand what's going on so that when they are making policy and writing laws that they understand the, the private sector too. Absolutely correct. One of the challenges, and I'm putting on my legislative hat here, when you're in, in the halls of Congress, is to understand how uh, technology works. <laughs> I remember when I was working in the Senate, um, I did most of, a lot of my business by calling people and asking them for information. I went to the, the private sector, and people said, why don't you use email? So <laughs> the pure infrastructure itself in Congress is behind the times. And one of the challenges that I've actually noticed moving from the private sector to the public sector is that Legislators have a tough time regulating in the area of technology. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is that technology moves so fast, there's always this danger they're going to put a law in place that will be outdated by the time it is actually enacted. I can even make an argument, for example, that data breach legislation, which requires um, notification if there's a social security number compromised or a name and a name and address, those specific requirements may be outdated in five years. Right. move on to new data. So one of the challenges for Congress is how do you keep pace with the technology? And if we have time, I'd love to talk to you about the concept of performance-based regulation because I think, especially from a legislative perspective, there's a lot of future there. Right. You know, I remember when we were working on the security breach legislation here in California and we were trying to say, well, how do you make it so that the law doesn't become obsolete as soon as you pass the law? So we were trying to say that, you know, any unique identifier or identifier that's specific to that person, like their credit card number or their biometric information right. or RFID information or anything, anything electronic that would identify that person. And then when we talked about the level of um, security, you know, if, in other words, the, the, the carrot for some company that has a security breach is if they've encrypted the data in California, then they don't have a duty to notify the potential uh, victims. Right. So, so that, that yeah, that's what, yeah. An example, because yeah. um, it could be, it was right. Washington about wh how to protect data, and, and there's new technologies coming out every day, and people are arguing whether encryption is the only way to do it. You could redact information, you can render it unusable, and so as a legislator, you have to be very careful that you don't bias solutions to protect new technologies from solving the problem. Exactly, and I think we put in a, a, like a loophole like that, too, that, that it would be the standard at the time of, uh, you know, that, that it would be with, what is it, ISO, is that who it is, or whatever it is, that whoever is making the standard to say what would be the appropriate standard. It, it, it is, it's a tough one. So let's go and talk about this exciting thing that ID Analytics has created, and that is called MyIDScore.com. Why don't you explain to us about how that all came about? Sure. Um, MyIDScore.com is a free service for consumers that allows consumers to get an instant insight into their risk of identity theft. And this is a very exciting project for me because I one of the things that I know that you worked very hard on, and the Senate that I worked very hard on when I was in the Senate was empowering consumers to protect themselves. Uh, when you're trying to stop identity theft, there's some things that organizations can do, but there's also things now that consumers can do. And one of the things we've all talked about is free credit reports and putting on followers. And the more things we can give consumers to empower themselves, and I know that you're even doing new work on this, Mari, um, uh, it's all the better. Right. Um, and so essentially, uh, the concept of myidscore.com is that ID Analytics, for almost a decade now, 
has been providing Fortune 100 companies in the telecommunication space, uh, many of the nation's leading wireless providers, leading retailers, government agencies. We've been helping them verify the identities of people um, who apply for credit cards or cell phones. And although we've been behind the scenes, we thought, well, this same technology would have a lot of value to consumers directly. So we've now made it available to consumers. And I think the neat thing about it is that it's at no cost. And and I think people start to wonder, and you and I have talked about this at length, about how people think if something is for free that there's some kind of a gimmick or there's something that they're going to get you. Um, so why don't we talk about why it's free and why it's not a gimmick? Right. Well, your point is certainly well made, Molly, that there's a lot of things out there on the internet that consumers should be wary of. There's free sites where if you sign on to them, suddenly you get a bill for $12.95 a month. And that obviously, personally, is frustrating for me and for a lot of other consumers. The rationale for us doing this was several things. One is that a lot of the common solutions out there right now to help protect consumers is credit monitoring. That, that kind of um, was sort of the de facto solution when data breaches started happening. And IDMX wants people to become more familiar with the concept of identity monitoring. So this rest is sort of a side that allows us to educate consumers on a new solution. And we know we have a lot of work to do, and we think we have a much better chance of educating consumers if uh, there are fewer hurdles as possible. The second thing is, obviously, you know, we, we've been a company, we haven't had been in front of uh, the limelight because we've mostly been business-to-business, but we want to, you know, uh, be as transparent as possible on who we are, and we thought this was a good way for, to introduce ourselves to consumers. And finally... Every time a consumer stops identity theft, it helps our clients. Right, right. And I think the, 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 the beauty of it is that you're already doing a lot of the, these things to, to help these companies to see if a, a, a potential new client is really is who he says he is, okay? So you already have that, and to make it free, I mean, you've already developed it. You're, you are making um, money doing that. I mean, it's not like it's all completely altruistic. You're, you're getting paid by the companies. So this is something that's readily available to you, and that's how I understood it, is that you do have right. this available, and why not let consumers at least see their risk, and then make some choices as to what they want to do. Right. I mean, your point is excellent, Marty, that we, in order to provide services to our companies, we had to build something called the, the ID network. And the way our technology works is that um, we have this network of identity information that we get from our clients. Um, it's kind of the same way that um, companies contribute to a credit bureau. And we use this information to analyze identity risk. And we, in our network, have over a billion um, consumer identity events, uh, which is constantly refreshed daily, and we have over 2 million reported frauds, which at last count, I believe, is the largest fraud network that we're aware of. And so what um, we do, we have, the, we have the underlying data so we can apply the same data directly to consumers. So what do you mean about um, fraud events? Right, well, um, what we look for are essentially unusual circumstances that would suggest that identity is at risk. Many consumers are familiar um, when they go to a local department store or to a Lowe's or a Home Depot, and before they can get their credit card or purchase approved, um, they get a call from the, the credit card company saying, wait a second, Mr. Oshowitz, um, did you just travel to Florida, Minnesota, and uh, San Diego in the last three days? Well, it's quite possible I did, but it's also possible I didn't. And they're, what they're seeing is unusual activity in your account. Okay, that's like the neural network, exactly. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Or say, for example, you spend $500 a month, and suddenly you spend $27,000. Now, it turned out in your case that it was true because you had a wedding and a, um, a graduation, and you had a big trip, but right. what they're looking for is unusual behavior. And we apply that same concept to identity. And in fact, the founders of this company came from the company that originally had that other technology. And um, Let me give you a couple examples of what an anomaly might be. What are the odds, for example, that... People with five different names that share the same social security number in our network. Right. Not very many. <laughs> right. Not very many. <laughs> right. What are the odds that uh, you would apply for a credit card from two different addresses on the same day? Right. What are the odds that your information in your network would be linked to an actual fraud? You know, those are all things that we would see, unusual behaviors, and that would be um, 
information that we would provide to our clients and that we could also provide directly to consumers through mydscore.com. So when you provide these to your clients, your clients then are hopefully going to verify and maybe, let's say it's you, Tom, they're going to call you, Tom, or they're going to write and say, you know, really, do you also have this other address? Or they're going to look on your credit report. Or they're going to do something to try and verify if, if that possibly could have happened, that you were, you know, in one city to apply for a card and then you flew to another city and decided to apply for the card again. You know, they're going to, hopefully they would verify. Is that, is that something that, that, that way, would happen? The way it generally works, and this is a, um, a product that um, is not decisionable under the FCRA, which for your listening audience means that people can't turn you down for a credit card application if you have a, a risky identity. Um, generally, what we do is we provide a, um, a score, a number between 1 and 999, and the higher the score, the higher the risk. And, if you're, and the other thing people should be aware of is that the vast, vast, vast majority of people are low risk. Let's just say that 98% of the folks will probably have relatively low risk scores, um, and 2% will have higher scores. So what do you do with the higher score folks? Well, it's up to individual organizations to, to take those next steps and verify that identity. So, for example, they may ask people to come into a bank to come in person. They may ask for a utility bill or other information, but they, they then do um, additional steps. And the other point I would make is that identity scoring didn't come out of whole cloth. It replaced existing systems that organizations were using before. So, historically, people were using systems, for example, rules-based systems, where, you know, is your address within a certain distance from your phone number? And so uh, this is actually based on risk. So in some ways, there should be fewer consumer problems than there were before. Right. And now with the red flag rules, and for those of you who are listening, the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act included a provision that companies that issue credit are supposed to adhere to the red flag rules, which are rules that tell you that, gee, maybe if, if like what Tom was saying, that if you have an address on your credit report that is different than the address that you are applying for credit from, then that should be a red flag, like, uh-oh, there's something wrong. And these are the kinds of anomalies that he's talking about. So I would think now with the red flag rules, since August companies are supposed to be compliant, that this would be even more important. Am I correct? The red flag rules um, is one of the, I would say, one of the more intriguing pieces of legislation that's come out in the last couple of years I believe it has the potential to be transformative in terms of um, the way consumers' identity are protective, or it may not be. <laughs> what do I mean by that? It really comes down to whether how the regulators enforce them. And sort of to explain in a nutshell to your readers or to your listeners um, what the red flag rules are, is essentially they require anybody who's a creditor, and that's defined very broadly. It could be a, a motor vehicle dealer, a mortgage broker, an, an attorney, management company, <laughs> A doctor, yeah, yeah. The whole world is considered a creditor. You know, um, my brother owes me five bucks. Maybe he's I'm a creditor to him as well. Um, (laughs) But uh, uh, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to um, basically look at your business processes, identify um, if there's risk, then come up with a way to detect it and then resolve it. And so theoretically, if organizations actually do resolve their risk, this could mean that there'll be fewer identity theft consumers. The other thing people should be aware of is there may be more friction that they experience, that when you go to your doctor's office, you may have to show your driver's license. Um, it may be that you, know, you, you might have another document to sign when you go to your, your lawyer. But on the other hand, the point we made earlier is that identity theft knows no boundaries, and we do need a comprehensive saddle of system to solve the problem. Exactly. We are speaking with a wonderful attorney, a wonderful chief privacy officer, and vice president of government affairs for ID Analytics. We're speaking with Tom Oshowitz, and he's responsible for monitoring and managing compliance with key governmental laws and regulations for ID Analytics. He's also president, vice president of governmental affairs, and he is located in beautiful Washington, D.C., so let's kind of switch gears a little, and let's talk about ID analytics. You know, we keep talking about ID analytics, and you said a little bit about them, but they, they pretty much have been under the radar. Why don't you explain who they are and uh, tell us uh, what the company does? Sure. ID analytics got founded almost a decade ago by folks who realized that 
identity theft was an emerging problem and solutions needed to be resolved. In the early, just to give you an example, in the early 1990s, transaction fraud was a huge problem in the credit card space. People were stealing credit card numbers, and uh, people were afraid that theft from credit cards was going to be so great that the whole system might be undermined. But we developed scoring technology, which was developed by the predecessor of analytics, and that has reduced transaction-related fraud from $0.18 cents for $100 to $0.05. Cents. So pretty much it went down by two-thirds. Wow. And so similarly, um, a similar problem has happened with identity theft, where the problem became national media attention, and estimates were over $50 billion a year. So folks said, we really have to solve the problem of identity. And that's where identity, ID Analytics stepped in. And what ID Analytics does is it helps organizations identify or help organizations assess identity risk so they can make sure that the right customer gets credit and credit isn't issued out to fraudsters. So let me ask you, Tom, how, how it works. So just like you said that companies report information to creditors and, and uh, to the credit reporting agencies, such as name, birthday, uh, credit card Right. Uh, information, whether somebody's late or when they're not late, okay, and that uh, you, that's the kind of stuff you see in your credit report. So what kind of information do do you get from the companies? And, and I'm, I'm thinking it would be the financial industry, and who sure. else? Right. From from all of our participating clients, and they come from, you know, from banks, from telecommunications companies, from retailers, uh, we typically get the, the basic identifying information that you would get from a consumer application, name, address, phone number, date of birth, social security number. The amount of information itself is relatively narrow, but it, what it lacks for in, in breadth, it has in depth, which is we get it from multiple industries. And what we look for is not so much the data by itself, but how the data relates to other pieces of data. And so this is sort of what ideologics does is it looks at interrelationships among identity elements that suggest unusual activity. Okay, so let's say that um, the telecommunicate you, you have applied for a phone, you've applied for utilities, you've applied for credit cards, you applied for a bank account, and let's say that all of those entities report. And so if they all get the same information, there's, there's no anomalies, right? And so then you have a low-risk score. Right, right. Is that how right, it works? Right. I'm just kind of seeing if I understand. Right, well... The, uh, there are thousands of what, what I don't know if this is looks for unusual behavior. So if the same plausible identity pattern occurs over and over again, for example, a plausible identity pattern might be that uh, there's two people that live in a household who um, have the same address but different phone numbers. Right. Um, uh, but there could also be, it's also a plausible identity pattern that you could live by yourself. Uh, but what is not a plausible identity pattern is that one person has, 17 different phones. Okay. It's possible, but not likely. Okay. Unless they run a business with right, right. different phones. So what phones. we do is we say, what are the odds that oh. this is a legitimate real person? Right. So we're, not, we're not telling people this person's a fraud. So we're saying, if you have a thousand identities, what are the ten riskiest identities that you should take a more closer look at? Uh, it's a winnowing tool. Yeah, and I, I think something that I really want to bring up that I that you have told me before when we've talked about this is that even though you get sensitive data from various companies across the board, you don't give back that data to anyone. You only give back a score, and I think that's really important for privacy reasons. And um, so, isn't that correct? Don't that have that a- is correct, and I think it reflects a sort of a new generation of approach to privacy. The, the data that we get at Analytics is different than the data you would provide to a traditional credit bureau in the sense that when a credit bureau gets data, what they do is they pass out that data out to their clients because in the form of credit reports. There's a lot of trade lines. Um, there's a lot of personal information in those reports. Um, when Analytics gets data, we don't give out that data to anybody. We don't even give out the data that our clients gave us back to our clients. All we give out are scores and explanations why a score is high or low. The other purpose point I would make is that if you look at national and international privacy laws, one of the major points of these laws is purpose limitation and use limitation. And we get the data to solve identity and fraud problems, and that's all we use the data for. I know, and that, that really appealed to me as, as a... You know, as a CIPP, just like you are, is that, okay, how are we thinking about 
protecting that private information. We're speaking tonight with a friend that I've known for many, many years, since the early 90s, when he worked for Senator Dianne Feinstein. He's a great guy. He's been doing wonderful things. And he's now the Chief Privacy Officer and Vice President of Government Affairs for ID Analytics, which is a company in San Diego. But, of course, he's in Washington, D.C., and we're thrilled to have him. We're talking about identity scoring and how that relates to identity theft. So, Tom, let's clarify for my audience exactly what identity uh, scoring is and and how you know how important is it that the consumer find this out sure from our perspective identity scoring is a new emerging way for identity to be evaluated and especially with myidscore.com we think from a consumer's perspective just as much as you can monitor your credit worthiness you can with a credit score you can monitor your identity with an identity score and uh, we think it can be, especially from the perspective of MyDScore.com, a very valuable tool in the consumer's arsenal. And the reason why I say that is when you're, you're stopping identity theft and you're trying to combat identity theft, we're always told about protect your data. You know, don't give out your social security card, shred documents. You know, we're all very in favor of the truncated credit card receipts, which only give out, don't give out the last five numbers. But it's also a sad fact or just a fact of life that we're living in a world now where personal information is going to be spread out and it is going to be available. And what can the ordinary consumer do about that? And what MyDscore does is it allows you in a flash, in an instant, to make an insight and say, wait a second, I know that in the credit applications and the phone applications and other retail activity going on in the United States, is my data being misused? And so you get a chance to get visibility into how other people are using your data. And that's if they are using your data. So let's talk about this website so that people, whether they're students on the campus here or business people driving by or people listening in on the Internet, this is free for anyone, anyone at all. I've done it. My daughter has done it. My husband, family, my son, everybody. And it's, it's, it's very interesting. You go to myidscore.com. Dot com, and it's a free website for consumers to assess their risk of identity theft. So let's first talk about what kinds of identity theft will be included in the risk score and, and what won't be included so right, that they, right. they kind of have an idea. Right. What, what my IDScore.com does is it has roughly the comparable scope of what you might get in a credit monitoring service. We can identify identity theft related to new account applications, and to uh, new uh, credit card applications and new retail card applications, misuse of checking accounts, you know, auto loans. Uh, so a variety of sort of what I would call traditional financial identity theft. Uh, and if you look at FTC stats, in terms of the greatest risk for consumers, that's where the bulk of it is. But it, this is not a complete solution, and there is no silver bullet. I want to stress that. There's no silver bullet here. This site won't tell you whether or not um, you're a victim of medical identity theft, for example. Or criminal. Or criminal identity theft. And so, and the other thing is it doesn't have complete coverage, as no service does. So it's, it's quite possible that um, you could have a low score on our site and still be a victim of identity theft, or a high score and not be a victim. But you'll have far more insight than if you didn't have any information at all. Just to give you sort of a stat, um, a traditional score on MightyScore.com is about a 300. If you have a 600, you're 16 times more likely than an ordinary consumer to be a victim of identity theft. And if you're a score of 750, you're 64 times more likely. So here you get empirically based insight into whether you're at risk based on the data in our network. And the other point I would make, and Mari, I've talked to you about this, is that we really want to make sure that we give consumers the best advice we could in terms of their risk level. So we actually have three different tiers of advice, low, moderate, and high, about 95% of the folks are going to have low scores. About 4% will have moderate scores, and 1% will have high. And if they have high scores, what we will do is, again, for free, they'll have the opportunity to go work with the Identity Theft Resource Center, a nationally recognized nonprofit that helps um, victims of identity theft, and they'll find out the reasons why their score is high and the underlying application data that's causing it. And it's important to know that when you go to idtheftcenter.com, which is the Identity Theft Resource Center, which I'm proud to be on their board, 
Um, you'll also find that their information is free. They have a ton of information at idtheftcenter.org, and they will help you for free. They can't do the work for you, but they surely can hold your hand and tell you what to do and guide you by phone and email. They're, they're really wonderful, and um, you know, I know Linda, who I helped when she was a victim. She's one of the founders, and Jay, Linda and Jay Foley are wonderful people, so it's a, it, we know that this is really a good company that ID Analytics is working with. They've known them for years. ID Analytics also is a supporter of ID, uh, the ID Theft Center as well. So it's, it's good stuff. And, and it is important that once you have that high score, like what do you do? I mean, if you see this high score, you're going to get scared and you're going to say, well, now what? So I think that's terrific that you have this relationship with them. So why don't we talk about when they go to myidscore.com, what, what are they going to do? What they're going to do is we are going to ask them for some basic identifying information, name, address, phone number, and date of birth. And, um, so, and social, too. Also, we're going to ask for it, but it's voluntary. Right. And uh, they can provide that information, and we'll provide them a score by comparing that information to the same ID network that we're using for Fortune 100 clients. Um, and that score will be between 1 and 999. Um, I also want to stress, because uh, as a privacy officer, we want to make sure there was no privacy risk for consumers. And so any information you put into the site, you have the option of opting out and erasing it from the site so as if you never came. So we want to make sure that there's no risk. You put this information in, you get your score, and then you can opt out of any use of that information. And, and I think it's important, because I asked you this question before, that if you do opt out... That doesn't mean that you can't come back and test yourself your score four months later or something, or a month That's later. Correct. correct. The only way we'll use the information is that we do have a limit on the site that you can use it twice every two weeks. So you couldn't use opt-out to game the system and opt-out and then do it four times in a week. So the, in terms of your ability to use the site, it doesn't affect your ability to use the site as it was designed. Right. So, you know, it, it's not a bad idea when you're sitting down and you're doing your bills or something and you think about it and you're doing your online banking. It's not a bad idea to go over to myidscore.com and then just see what your score is. Kind of monitor it. It's a tool. Just like some people use credit monitoring, that's a tool. Some people make sure that they get their annual creditreport.com and get their free credit report once a year. That's important. They may go to choicepoint.com and get their background check, find out their landlord-tenant from uh, disclosure or their work history. Those are really important things. So this is another tool that's free, and those are free as well. So I think it's, it's terrific. Right. Uh, one other, a couple other points. One is, how do you use the score? Oh, I make a couple points. One is, mightyscore.com doesn't predict the future. It only predicts what we've seen so far. So I'd recommend that people look at it periodically because... Um, while you may be safe today, who knows what will happen tomorrow. The second point is that time is money. And according to recent FTC stats, the Federal Trade Commission, the sooner you uncover identity theft, the less you will lose. So it does make sense to monitor your identity risk periodically and cover fraud. I tend to look at an ID score like a thermometer. If you have a temperature of 104, that's pretty good information that you're sick. Um, if you have a temperature of 98.6, you may or may not be sick. Who knows? But it is an indicator that you can use, especially for all of us who are so busy, to at least proactively do something to check their identity. You know, I want to I follow up on that. That's such, such good points that you made, Tom. And I think it's really important that people realize that they could become a victim of identity theft in so many different ways. You know, the FBI says one out of five people will become victims. We know that there's about 10 million new victims a year. And who knows? I mean, you could be... You could do everything right. You could be so careful about not giving out your information and not putting your social security number in your wallet, shredding everything, not ever giving out personal information. But your information is obviously in many, many databases. And many of you listening may have gotten a, a security breach notification where, let's say, your social security number and all your other personal information was acquired by an unauthorized criminal, let's say. So um, it, it could happen at any time, or it could even be somebody in your doctor's office and a, you know, an unscrupulous employee. So 
You have no idea. If you go in today, and I've had people say to me, oh, well, my credit, you know, I, my credit's fine. I, I looked at it eight months ago. There's no, there's no problem. Or, you know, if you think that you're going to go on my ID score and say, oh, today I'm perfectly fine, you really need to monitor and see what is going on because there is so much um, beyond your control in terms of protecting yourself from identity theft at this point the best thing we can do until we get some more legislation to protect us is to really be proactive be a savvy consumer and monitor whatever you can and it's nice when you get all these free things like myidscore.com like annualcreditreport.com like choicepoint.com and even you can go for your medical information for free once a year to go mib.com that's medicalinformationbureau.com so those are things you know Tom I also wanted to bring up something that a lot of people don't know and you mentioned this and that is with your myidscore.com it gives you some things that you won't see on your credit monitoring because you said that it that um, you get information when people open up new bank accounts that does not appear in your credit report same thing if you get information from uh, utility companies. Right. Well, uh, in terms of uh, the type of your, exactly, uh, we have national direct-to-video services or satellite companies that use our services. Uh, telecommunications companies uh, traditionally don't report to credit bureaus. We we have sources um, uh, that are in sort of the checking business, and so well, um, because there check- are data sources that you're going to get from us that you don't get in the bureaus, and of course there are some from the bureaus that you don't get from us. So um, it's, again, uh, definitely there are things here that you're going to get that you can't get elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's another important point, and, and some people don't realize this or don't even think about it, but if someone is, is writing fraudulent checks, either forging your checks or they're uh, creating new checks in your name or they've opened up new checking accounts in your name that you don't know about on the other side of the country, that is never going to appear in your credit report. But it will be something that my, D, my ID score will be monitoring as well. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, my understanding right now is uh, uh, checks are not in the current thing, but it's something that's coming down the road. So um, it, it is definitely part of the future capabilities. Right. And I should mention here that if you are a victim of any kind of check fraud, you can go to checksystems.com, and they are subject to the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act as well. And you can get your free check systems report showing any kind of anomaly in your checks or um, your name with regard to checks. So if somebody doesn't accept a check in your name, you got to go to check systems and some of the other uh, systems as well because they offer a free report as well because they're subject to the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So, Tom, you've suggested that to fight identity theft and identity fraud, consumers need to do two things. They need to protect their personal data from misuse and they must remain vigilant. How do they really protect, I mean, I understand remaining vigilant by monitoring, but you know, how can we really protect our, our data from misuse in this information age? I mean, it's an incredibly tough challenge. If you look at the type of legislation and recommendations folks have made, ranging from the FTC website to elsewhere, uh, some of the requirements are shredding your documents. They could be not putting sensitive documents in your wallet. But at the end of the day, I think I think you're you're right, Molly. It's a real challenge to keep your information out from third parties. There are some tools that are available. For example, you can put freezes on your credit report, which is a tool that definitely has value. Uh, but and let's talk about what that is in case my audience, we've talked about this before, but if they haven't listened in, uh, you can put a security freeze on your credit report that actually locks up your credit so that no new potential creditors can even get a hold of it. In other words, you write to the credit bureaus, you tell them, I want to put a freeze in my credit report, they will give you a password, and then no, no fraudster can apply for credit and, and have the creditor get your credit report for the purpose of issuing you credit. So they, if, if a creditor can't see your credit report, they're not going to issue credit to the creditor. So that's a way to kind of lock it up 
which is what you know Tom is talking about. And there are other things that just about just about being really privacy conscious about not giving out your information, being real careful on these social networking sites, just being very conscious of everything that you're doing and who you're sharing information with, right? In terms of how you protect information, there are steps that we're doing both legislative-wise and from the consumer perspective um, to protect information. The government is doing a massive effort right now to restrict access to Social Security numbers and getting Social Security numbers off of documents. We have data breach legislation now where one of the targets of data breach legislation, one of the consequences, is that people are now encrypting, especially businesses, sensitive data in their networks. These are all positive steps to protect data. On the other hand, and in addition, on social networking sites, there are now people can make decisions about what information they do and they don't disclose. Those are all things that people can do um, in shredding documents. But on the other hand, as you pointed out, Mari, information can be obtained by very persistent fraudsters because our information is out there. Yeah. So, you know, you're in the heart of everything. You're talking about being on Capitol Hill. Uh, what are the newest trends in identity fraud, anyway? Identity fraud, some of the oldest trends are the newest trends with identity fraud. Uh, but in terms of some of these that we've noticed, one of the things that's happened because of the tough economic times is there has been a renewed concern about first-party fraud. And what is first-party fraud? First-party fraud is where an individual either reports that they're a victim of identity theft when they're really not, or um, they manipulate identity elements so that it looks like it's somebody else, but it is really their own basic identity that's been slightly manipulated. So that's something that's sort of a, sort of a current issue that, that has been more recently emerging since the, uh, the recession. Other issues range from medical identity theft, which is getting increasing prominence, especially with our national health IT network that we're considering. And the emerging challenges from social networks, whether it's impersonation on websites or elsewhere, but social networking is definitely creating new challenges. Yeah, I think people, especially here we are on the campus, and a lot of students are, you know, so involved in Facebook and MySpace and all of the dating networks that they, they get excited about it. They, they feel like they're communicating, but they forget in, in, the, in the heat of all of the discussions, they forget how much information that they're really sharing. And I think that's one place that we're seeing a lot more identity theft, at least that I'm hearing about here. And, and that's an excellent point, Mari. One of the things that people should be aware of on Facebook is they need to make the connection between what they're doing on, on their social networking sites and what they're seeing in the marketplace. If you look at many financial services authentication sites, they often ask consumers challenge questions. What was the name of your favorite pet? What was the city that you were born in? What high school did you go to? These, ironically, are often the same questions that consumers disclose on their social networking sites. So don't give out information on your website, on your social networking, social networking website, which might be the same exact information that your bank's using to verify you. Oh, good point. So when we're talking about security breach legislation, you've talked before earlier about there's over 45 states now that have established security breach legislation. What do you think about the prospects of a federal security breach legislation bill on Capitol Hill? What's I, going I on? Mari, one of the last bills I introduced for Senator Feinstein, um, and she was the first senator to offer this, was a proposed national data breach legislation, and that was in 2004, and we're now in 2009. So despite a number of nationally prominent breaches, action hasn't happened. And actually, like people in California, like me, say, well, gee, we have a great security breach law. It was the first one in the country, and, you know, it's not broken. Why try and fix it with a federal law? That's actually, you know, one of the reasons why we're, there's, a, a national, there's a concern. From a, from a privacy perspective, the consumer community has to ask, if there's national legislation, what's in it for us? Do we need to fix things that aren't broken? And from the business community's perspective, the question is, is there enough variation in the 45 different state laws that it's making hard for us to comply? Right. And so that's one challenge. The other challenge, which is just peculiar to the obscure workings of Congress, is that Congress doesn't have a privacy committee. Congress has committees based on topics like commerce or health care, 
And so for the for price legislation in the past, it's often quite difficult because it goes to multiple committees. Mm. You've got to get a lot of different fiefdoms to agree to work together to get a bill passed. And that's what's happened in data breach legislation, where on the House and the Senate, you've had multiple committees vying with different proposals to get a solution done. And that's one of the challenges, is how do you break through that procedural logjam to get a legislation passed? Wow. What about the information brokers? You know, uh, several years ago, Senator Bill Nelson from from Florida had introduced a bill, S-500, which was meant to be similar to the Fair Credit Reporting Act for data brokers. And, you know, we have millions of data brokers selling very sensitive information on the Internet. And uh, I testified on that bill, and I and I know it just kind of fell to the wayside. Is there anything going on uh, to in Congress right now to make information brokers more accountable? Information broker legislation is closely tied to data breach legislation. On the House side, uh, there's a bill in the Commerce Committee, um, H.R. 2221, which um, is a data breach bill, but it also has a provision regulating information brokers. Uh-huh. In the Senate... Senator Leahy, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, also has a data breach bill that has an information broker provision in it. And what I would sort of opine or, or guess is that data broker bills is possible, but it's going to have to be linked to data breach legislation. The other alternative would likely be cybersecurity legislation, which is getting a lot of attention in Congress. Right, and we're seeing more and more cyber identity theft. And that, that's kind of interesting, too, because cyber identity theft can be anything from, you know, companies being, uh, you know, seeing that their information is set up in a, in a fake or a spoofed website or a fake or spoofed email, which we get all the time, right, the phishing emails. But it also can be like somebody pretending to be Tom Oshowitz, you know, writing Mari an email saying, you're an idiot, you know, <laughs> and then Mari gets mad at Tom, and, it's, and it isn't Tom. And so we're seeing those kind of emails and those kinds of things that are the cyber identity theft that I think are really scary, too, because sometimes it's so hard to find the person who's doing that or somebody puts up a website and pretends to be you. I've, I've gotten so many people calling me with cyber identity theft. What do you think? Is there anything in Congress right now to address that issue? One thing I would say, and I worked a little bit on this, is that cybersecurity and identity-related issues related to cyber are getting increasing prominence. So if you look over the last year, there have been three major reports coming out of the um, federal government or Washington related to cybersecurity and identity. One was CSIS, which is a, I don't know that what the acronym stands for, but it's like the Center for Strategic Institute Studies. Uh-huh. And they had a report, cyber report for the 44th presidency. Uh, There's a 60-day cyber review done by Melissa Hathaway for the president. And also there's an identity issues task force. And every one of those um, reports indicated that identity issues need to get resolved for our cybersecurity. And the privacy issues also needed to be addressed. So what we're starting to see is sort of an understanding that Identity and protecting identity and understanding identity and preserving privacy is really linked to our cybersecurity. And that's a new trend I've seen in Washington. Right. What about the new administration? You know, it's, it's vastly different from the previous administration in terms of supposedly more consumer-oriented. And I know they met, he, um, Obama's administration met with some privacy advocates. What do you think we're going to see coming down with this new administration? Anything different with regard to privacy and identity theft? I think the jury is still out in this regard. The administration has an incredible amount of, of challenges on their plate, ranging from health care reform to climate change legislation to financial services reform. It's hard to really assess where they're going with privacy because they have other bigger challenges that they're facing. So one of the things to think about from a privacy perspective with this new administration is, when will they have time to get to it? Uh, but in terms of reading the tea and looking at it, I, I think there's some sort of conclusions you can draw about where the Obama administration is going. First, I think we've already seen some indication that they have a strong interest in transparency and in harnessing technology, uh, the powers of technology. We all are aware of um, how effectively the Obama campaign used social networking sites. 
right. and how interested they are in some of those solutions. The other point I would make is that uh, they have a new FTC commissioner, uh, John Leibowitz, who is, um, has an interest in privacy issues, and you might see a more active FTC in that regard. Yeah, if we, they get enough resources. Exactly. <laughs> well, we have a very big job over at the FTC. Right. Well, you have a very big job, too, and it looks like you're doing a great job, Tom, and we are so thrilled for you in this exciting field that you're in and protecting consumers and helping us to protect ourselves from identity theft. And we're, well, believe it or not, we're out of time. Would you believe? So why don't you give the, the two websites, and we will have to talk to you again. All right. Thank you so much. The websites are www.myidscore.com, M-Y-I-D-S-C-O-R-E.com, and Ideonics website, for those who want to learn more about us, is www.idanalytics.com. Well, thank you so much, Tom Oshowitz. You are a great privacy officer, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Good night. Good night, Mari. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See our upcoming guests. Download podcasts. Listen to archived interviews. And, and write us emails about what's important to you about privacy and privacy in the information age. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips, and we are welcoming back Janet Sainer, who is the Director of Crime Prevention for the Orange County Sheriff's Department. She's in law enforcement for 29 years, and she's been with the department for the past 16 years. Thank you, Janet, for coming back. Oh, I'm delighted. Thank you. Janet, last week we talked about crime prevention in Orange County. And why don't you tell us about Neighborhood Watch and other programs which help prevent crime? You know, Neighborhood Watch programs in the Orange County Sheriff's Department, we have approximately fifty-two to 55,000 people who are involved in these programs. And they become our extra eyes and ears to help protect our neighborhoods and our families. Uh, we provide many, many different kinds of programs. And many of them are based basically on the needs of the community. But we do child safety programs in the local neighborhoods as well as at the schools. We do parent education. We do babysitting safety. We do personal safety classes. And we also have a class that is called SEPA, Citizens Emergency Preparedness Academy, which is dedicated to helping people in their immediate neighborhood to be prepared for any type of an emergency. And we do this in partnership with the Orange County Fire Authority as well as Red Cross. Well, I know the fire season is coming up, and I know there's concerns for other types of disasters. So what can the community members do to deal with these situations? I had told you before that I took the CERT training, the Community Emergency Response Training, and that was really an eye-opener that I know that at least I could help my own family and maybe my neighbors a little bit. So what about that? If there was an emergency, will there be help immediately from law enforcement? You know, in a perfect world, we'd love to say yes, but we all know that that's not going to happen. We advise our citizens today to be prepared to be by themselves for at least a week. We used to say three days. Now we're realistically understanding a week makes more sense. But we encourage the people to have the supplies for their families on hand, designated in certain areas of the house or in their garage, prepare a backpack for each family member that contains their necessary needs, whether it's medication or whether it's extra shoes, whatever they would need. In our classes, as well as I know in your CERT class, we stress the importance of knowing just basic first aid and having the ability to understand how to handle the situations because there is a real psychology about disasters, knowing that when you make those decisions that you're going to have to make, and they're going to be tough decisions that you're going to be prepared to handle those. 
You're going to know how to respond to the needs of all of your neighbors. So in all of the classes, we stress how do you handle, we do triage, we, how do you handle those emergency situations that are going to happen to all of us at one time or another. Well, we're going to send everybody to the website so that they can perhaps sign up for these classes. Janet, why don't you tell them where they can go? They can go to OCSD.org, and there's a whole menu that they can go into to research the needs that they're looking for. Well, thank you so much, and we'll have you back again soon. Bye-bye. 